Lady Metal. As always, my name is Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and my co-host is Chris Kay. Forty years ago, the L.A. club scene was on the verge of exploding onto the mainstream. Bands like Dawkins, Motley Crue, and Quiet Riot were getting gobbled up by major label record companies looking to find the next big thing, while veterans like Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne, and ACDC were looking to maintain their relevance. At the same time, new bands tired of the hairspray and makeup of the burgeoning glam scene began to make waves in the underground. The rising thrash metal scene that permeated the Bay Area as well as New York City would give birth to several influential independent record companies that would release debut albums from some of the biggest names in metal. If you haven't guessed by now, we're referring to the year 1983 and what a year it was. Today, Chris and I are going to talk about some of the events of 83 and talk about some of the metal albums that had a huge impact on the scene. And at the end, we'll give you our big four albums of 1983. So Chris, 1983. So we're literally going backwards in time because we were in the grunge scene a few weeks ago, you know, and we did a, a in-depth uh, analysis of the grunge scene in Seattle, but now we're heading back to the beginnings of thrash metal. When when the LA scene, the glam metal, was starting to get big, and '83 was an important year to that. I I, I think. What's What's kind of interesting is so the the grunge scene was born out of that kind of distaste for what hair metal was as well, and so this you know almost 10 years earlier is the same thing. So the people that didn't fit into that, that category that didn't want to wear makeup, didn't want to tease their hair. They just wanted to go play music is that same kind of attitude, but well before. Yeah, that, that is pretty interesting. So uh, glam people were pissing everybody off for years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you if, if I had been born during that time, there was no way I would have been glammed out. Just that's my personality. I would have never done that. I would have been part of the thrash scene, or I don't think I would have been part of grunge. I would print thrash all the way. Well, the funny thing about that is, is that you know, obviously, I grew up right in the middle of this, and yeah, I was a teenager when all this is starting to go down, and glam. I didn't, it's, it's weird. Like, like I was a big, big Kiss fan, and I would wear Kiss makeup because I got the the official Kiss makeup kit, which was really good stuff. Like the shit that they sell nowadays is like kitty fucking makeup compared to what they sold. They sold legitimate Kiss makeup back in the in the late seventies, and it, that was a kind of like the white did not run. None of the none of the colors ran. Like when you sweat, it was it was good stuff. And then, you know, I, I didn't get into the, like, the, with, you know, all the hairspray and the teasing of the hair and, 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 and wearing, the, like, a, a base layer of makeup. I never got into that. But I liked the bands. I mean, I liked Poison. I liked Motley Crue. I liked Cinderella, you know. Uh, but I didn't get into their look, per se, except for one time. And, and I actually showed the band this at one time. So in 1987, I graduated high school. We had our prom uh, earlier in the, in, in the year or earlier in 1987 before graduation, obviously. And I, well, my girlfriend and I at the time, we went down to New York City and we were looking for an outfit for me to wear to the prom. So it had to be 
tuxedo-like, but at the same time, she wanted it to be different. Like she knew how I was and she totally encouraged everything. So, um, we ended up getting a, like a tuxedo jacket, but it was one that like went down to the, to the, to my knees and it was made of, um, not silk, but that silky kind of like satiny, silky material. And it, it was black and it had a gold pipe around all the stitching. And then it had like the, like the captain's tassels on the shoulders, right? And then we put some spikes on it and we painted the spikes gold. And then I did up my hair like I was Jeff Tate from Queensryche with a little point and a little push up on the sides a little bit. And that was the only time I could sit there and say that I did the whole pump of glam metal. And funny thing was I was, I was emulating Queensryche, which at the time was technically not glam, but they glammed themselves up because that was what you did in 1985, 86. Well, I mean, I get that. That That's like a special occasion, though. It's not like you every day. Right. I did not do it every day. Every day was, I looked like a a regular thrasher. I had a leather jacket with spikes on or a jacket with a painting on the back and, you know, or a denim jacket. And that was it. And jeans and sneakers. Um, I pretty much the way I dress now. <laughs> and um, I, I I did not go into that whole, you know, teasing the hair thing. My hair, my hair, the humidity killed my hair anyway. So I just poofed up by itself. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of those things where I just, I didn't like the glam part of glam, but I liked the music. That- well, I mean, but that's, that was essentially what a lot of the thrash guys did where they, they liked certain aspects of the music, um, but wanted a little bit harder edge and didn't like dressing up. So they just went on stage with their regular clothes. All right. Well, let's get into a little bit of this 1983 stuff. Um, so let's, let's take a look at some of the bands that formed in 1983. All right. So who, who started in 1983? So some of the bands that started in 83, Alcatraz with Graham Bonnet and Ingve Malmsteen on guitar. That was a little short-lived, but nonetheless, Alcatraz started that year. <laughs> Very short-lived. Well, for for I mean, Ingve- Alcatraz was was you know around a bit longer, but Ingve would yeah. move on quickly. Ingve, yeah, exactly. Uh, bon Jovi started that year. They formed that year. Um, a band named Lillian Axe formed that year. Uh, Lizzie Borden, for those people who are into a little bit harder than your normal glam. Uh, L.A. Guns, the the first original one, not the the three that are existing or two that exist right now. (laughs) Uh, Technically, technically Megadeth started that year. Uh, Poison started that year. Possessed, the Red Hot Chili Peppers started that year. Sawain started that year, or some people know them as Sam Hain and Glenn, Glenn Danzig's Post Misfits band, uh, Striper, a band named Legacy started that year, which would eventually turn into Testament. Uh, Trickster, Warrant, and White Lion all started in 1983. There's a couple more. Okay, give me uh, some more. De- Death formed in 1983. Uh, Bathory. So if you're if you're more familiar with the the black metal scene, Bathory formed. Um, Fate's Warning. We haven't really talked a whole lot about them 
in our time, but maybe sometime we should. Mayhem, if you'll remember, uh, the the most notorious band in, in uh, black metal, and, and Halloween, and Metal Church. Metal Church? I thought that was 84. Well, I guess not. It formed we, together in we, 83. We just talked about them a few weeks ago. We did. <laughs> Because they oh, weren't as well as Morbid they weren't Angel. on my list. That's why I was. Yeah, like, Morbid Angel. That was another band. I think we've mentioned a couple times. Uh, yeah, we did. A, we did a death metal episode. So yeah, um, yeah. They were they were there. Um. Yeah. You know, I I, I did not. So the list I had didn't have. I guess they, my, the list was a little less hard than, <laughs> than yours, yours. Yours was a little more mainstream. Yeah, I see death now. I didn't even realize it. I, I, I kind of skipped right over the list I was looking at, that that name. Um, So, yeah, and then another band that started that we're going to talk about a little bit uh, was Fastway. Uh, that was Pete Way and Fast Eddie Clark. So that's how they came up with the name Fastway. And um, So that was, they were a cool, like a, just like a straightforward, they weren't as heavy as Motorhead, but it was straightforward, you know, heavy blues rock, you know, very heavy blues rock, but for, uh, pretty cool nonetheless. They had a breakthrough success with the song um, Say What You Will, and then they had the, the Trick or Treat soundtrack later on. I guess it's better that they came up with Fastway than like Fast Pete or, <laughs> or Clark Way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, we're going to go over some of the albums that came out this year and kind of give you some details about those albums. Um, so here we go. What do you got first? Um, so let's talk about um, let's talk about Dio. Let's give, let's give him the the, the first uh, slot here. Um, so Dio. Um, you know, obviously had come from from Rainbow, had had some time in Black Sabbath, and now was doing his own thing. So he he forms a band, which he gets actual pretty much full control of because he's the producer of uh, for the for their first album, and that's Holy Diver. It was released in May twenty fifth of nineteen eighty three on Warner Brothers Records, uh, and that was Vertigo on in the UK and Mercury in Europe and Japan. Uh, they recorded at Sound City Studios and Van Nuys. Is that how you say that? Van Nuys. Van Nuys, California. And uh, produced, like I said, the album was produced by Ronnie James Dio. So part of the reason he broke up with Black Sabbath, as it's been told over the years, was that during the recording of their live evil album, was that basically Ronnie would do one thing when he was in the studio... And then Tony would come behind him and, and change the settings afterwards, and they would go back and forth, and they were having a lot of dispute over those things. There was the, the issues that they, they had just had that were building up over time. And this was his chance to strike out on his own. And for an album that, you know, basically it was his opportunity to, to become a man of his own, it's fantastic. I mean, I would say it's on a lot of top 10, a lot of top 20 lists that have come out over the years. Um, I know Kerrang! gave it like a perfect melodic metal album, uh, you know, description when, when, it, when it came out. Um, it's a 10 over 10 
for collector's guide to heavy metal um you know it's it's one of those albums that to me is a perennial classic you got holy diver stand up and shout uh rainbow in the dark straight through the heart don't talk to strangers i mean just absolute classics of songs and it would continue his relationship with Vinnie Apice who would be his drummer for many more albums um you know they first worked together on mob rules so um i absolutely love this album what do you think oh the album's great i mean it's a classic without a doubt the first time that i heard anything from the album was when mtv played the 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 video for rainbow in the dark um and you see this this guy who's dressed a little bit like someone that's coming from you know the renaissance fair (laughs) And, (laughs) and uh and it's funny because that inspired so many people in the eighties to wear those like moccasins that, that tie all the way up to the top of your calf. Um, it was just so <laughs> such an odd way to dress, but anyway, I'm not going to get into it cause I'm pretty sure there's someone listening out there to us that dresses like that. And I don't want to offend them. Um, so, so my experience, first experience was very similar, but it was on VH1 classic. Um, so I saw the Holy Diver video and I see him, you know, stomping through a castle and he's he's swinging this sword around, you know, kind of like hitting guys that are like you never see him directly hit anybody. Right. It, camera angle changes every time. And I thought I was like, what, who is this dweeb? You know, like, <laughs> but but by the end, I was like, the music was so good. Like, I couldn't deny it. You know, it was kind of corny. It's kind of cheesy. But I loved it. And I, I love the music video for it. Like, it just it, it by the, the end of four and a half minutes, it it sold me. Oh yeah, I mean it was it, it. I mean, Holy Diver itself. That that song it, it, is awesome. Um, it's and there's something about that song that that just it it it's like it's not like a build because it's a pretty like straightforward plotting metal song, but it's got such a good hook and a good melody to it. And that was the thing about you know metal in the 80s it, it to succeed you had to have a hook you had to have good melodies you know it something's changed along the way a little bit later on where good hooks and, or good riffs replace good hooks and then uh a a basic kind of chorus replaced the very melodic choruses but it wasn't for the negative per se because a lot of that music is is kind of what other forms of or genres of metal you know derived from but it definitely went from being very very melodic to very heavy and a little bit different in in terms of melody and and, and hookiness but no. um anyhow holy diver was just fantastic i mean stand up and shout hooked me right away um you know like it's like you were mentioning you know holy diver um Gypsy is pretty cool. Rainbow in the Dark, obviously, is is was a really cool song, and that's a funny thing because that was a big hit for him, and really is what put him on the map. And that was a throwaway. He didn't want to do that song. He thought it was corny sounding. He thought it was cheesy, and it ends up being you know one of his biggest hits early on. So that that's uh, to hear anything like Dio saying being cheesy, you know, <laughs> it's just like well, that's extra cheese. <laughs> Yeah, because he's pretty, he's high on the cheese factor. Yeah, we love him for it. 
No, I mean, like you said, Ronnie grabbed his career by the horns and, it, and it, he took off with this album. So, um, and it was a it was a fruitful relationship for the band for three albums, uh, and then business matters got in the way, and Vivian Campbell uh, was either he either quit or he was fired. Um, I think he was straight up fired at that point because I don't think he actually wanted to leave. So he, you know, they just showed him the the door. Or Mrs. Wendy Dio showed him the door. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, they they never really patched up their their differences. Unfortunately, no, no, unfortunately not. Okay, so let's pick another album from this year that uh, we want to talk about. And for me. I'm going to go ahead and talk about Twisted Sister and You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. That came out this year. Um, that album was released in May of 1983 on Atlantic Records, and it was recorded at Soul Studios in Cookham, England. And it was produced by um, renowned producer Stuart Epps. So, that, so, so Twisted Sister basically was a veteran of the New York City tri-state area. And tri-state, for those who don't know the area, is New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Or is it New York? No, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut is the tri-state area. Um, so, and Connecticut being really on the outskirts towards the north. Um, they were they were veterans of the club scene, New York, New Jersey. They were been playing there at this point you know come up to 1983 almost almost eight years nine years and they could not for the life of them get themselves a record deal well in 1982 that changed they went to england they got uh, a deal after you know playing some shows out there with secret records released an ep they released their first album under the blade and then secret went bankrupt like literally overnight Luckily enough, they had enough of a of a, a groundswell and enough of an underground um, following in England that Motorhead and Lemmy sp- specifically uh, took a liking to them, and and D. Snyder and Lemmy, had, you know, had a famous you know friendship over the years, and because of Motorhead's uh, basically giving them the the thumbs up, people people like Twisted Sister. So they were they got signed to Atlantic Records. They released You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. Um and they actually had a a pretty decent hit in the song I Am I Me that reached number 19 in UK singles chart. Um that album, I mean, you and I we did a I know we did a Twisted Sisters Greatest Hits, but I don't think we did a head to head and the, the the greatest hits, I mean, we we picked out some songs and this album has some good tracks on it. Yeah, I mean it's it's really not bad. Um, I I'm not the biggest fan of of Twisted Sister because you hear a drummer like AJ Pirro who's so talented, and I always feel like he's just held back by the songwriting. I feel the same way about a lot the musicians of the band as a whole, and I don't know. There's something about that that really bothers me. Like while I'm listening to it, but there, you can't deny they have some really great classics. Um, and this this is not a bad album by any means. This is probably one of the best Twisted Sister albums. Period. I mean, you, the song "You Can't Stop Rock and Roll" was was a was a, a hit on MTV. I mean, there's there's definitely the one thing that that Twisted Sister was known for was their 
and in some cases not so subtle, but they had some subtle comedy in their videos. And this one had it because, you know, the guy puts on headphones and all of a sudden the music's too loud and it blows up in his ears. And then he basically, you know, dies from listening to Twisted Sister. Um, what a so, way to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. They waste them there at the end of the, at the end of the video. Um, but, you know, then, of course, everyone knows what's happened with I Want to Rock and with, uh, you know. Um, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it. Damn. So. It, they, they, that's the style of video that they started putting out. But even then, that changed. But for the most part, I mean, I think they put a video out for Leader of the Pack, another comedy video. So that's that's part of the problem that Twisted Sister had. Excuse me. That's part of the problem that Twisted Sister had was they were kind of lumped into this uh, a comedy routine, really. And some people didn't take them seriously. You know, you and I both are wrestling fans, and that's one thing that I know that you don't like so much is the comedic wrestling. And yeah. to to me, that's what kind of happened to Twisted Sister. No one took them seriously. They weren't taken as serious musicians. Yeah, they had they had talent, but it's it's like it's overlooked because of the gimmick. Right, exactly. Yeah. So but this album was pretty cool. I mean, it's one of my favorite albums by by them. I mean, they don't have that many. Um, but I mean one distinct thing, I remember when Stay Hungry became a big hit in nineteen eighty four, um that's that's when I discovered this album. So I didn't discover this album immediately in nineteen eighty three. Um, but after I became a fan of Twisted Sister, um I picked up this album and this album Man, I played the crap out of this album. I remember hanging out in my buddy's neighborhood. <clears throat> he lived in, a, in, a, in an apartment, and then right in between that apartment and the building and the next apartment building, and these weren't big. These were like, you know, just five-story kind of, com- uh, like, just large apartments. They weren't like a, like a, a projects or anything like that. Right in between there, there was a parking lot and there was an abandoned car. And I think it was like some sort of Jeep type thing or something like that. Or it may, may have been a van. I can't remember. But we used to hang out in that thing all the time. You know, and, and you think about it now, like that that's not something I would ever think about doing nowadays. Right? So, yeah. But, you know, we're in there and, you know, there's however many countless people. We're, we're sitting in that chair in the, in the driver's seat and the passenger seat. It, now I think about it, it was a van because I remember that big console in the middle. Uh, where the engine bay is really at inside a van. And we were just cranking, you know, had my boom box. We're cranking Twisted Sister all the time. So it, that that's my, my distinct memory of that album back in the day. And this is 90, 1984, 1985. So I'm 15, 16 years old at this time. There's always something so kind of refreshing when you think about those those moments and like when you first listen to an album, et cetera. All right, so what do you have next? All right, so kind of going back to the band that Dio just came from, uh, let's talk about Black Sabbath with their 1983 album, Born Again. Um, So released on September 12th, 1983 on Warner Brothers Records, uh, the same Warner Brothers Records that released Dio's album, which I thought was kind of interesting, and Vertigo Worldwide. Uh, This was recorded at Manor, Oxfordshire, England. So... um, this was produced by Robin Black and Black Sabbath. So one thing that I think is very interesting about this is that basically, you know, they had did had Ozzy in the band who became absolutely iconic uh, over these, you know, 
ever since. Finally just retired this year. Um, <clears throat> who knows if that's going to be permanent? We don't know. You know, there could always be one more moment, right? Um, so then they go to Dio and release Heaven and Hell. It's an absolutely amazing album. They release Mob Rules. And then essentially the band breaks up over uh, a live album. So um, not a very long tenure with the band. And their future was really in doubt. You know, they've lost Bill Ward. They've lost Vinny Apice. They've lost uh, uh, Ronnie James Dio. So, you know, they, they need to kind of reform in a way. Um, for this album, they got Bill Ward back. And uh, they were kind of discussing different singers. They were trying to figure out, you know, what direction they want to go. They had considered Robert Plant, uh, which I think is absolutely crazy. They considered um, David Coverdale. Can you imagine David Coverdale with Black Sabbath? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Do um, you know who else auditioned for Black Sabbath at this time? Who? Michael Bolton. Really? Yeah, Michael Bolton. Well, that that goes along the lines of David Coverdale. Yeah, you know, I think it's but, that, that's pretty interesting. I would love to hear that audition. Oh, jeez, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I can't even imagine that. And so they ended up with Ian Gillen, Ian Gillen of Deep Purple. Um, so <laughs> what a weird story this is. So basically, they they you know suggested it. They signed it. They did it. They never rehearsed together. They never tried anything out. Uh, you know, they start on the tour, and Ian Gillen thinks this was a mistake. <laughs> you know, um, so it really didn't last long. It was a very short tenure of this this lineup. I think everybody likes each other or liked each other even then. It just it didn't click in the way they thought it might. And um, I still think the album was really good. I like it a lot. Um, and the first song that I heard from it was Trashed. Actually, that's not correct. First song I heard was Zero the Hero and the Dark Instrumental. And I thought that was really cool. I really like that song. And I th the first time I heard it was in a compilation um, with mostly Aussie stuff. And there was, there was at, the, at the end, there was Dio stuff. And it did not say... On the on the inner or the liner stuff that that came with the the copy that I had, that it was or like who sang the songs like they didn't list anything, and I don't know if if maybe I had a bootleg or something like that, but um, I was like, man, Ozzy sounds weird, you know, <laughs> like I I legitimately did not realize that it was somebody else. Like I was like, what is this? He sounds so bizarre, you know. And I was very young when I when I first heard it, and then I learned later that it was it was Ian Gillen. I say, oh, okay, that makes a thousand times more sense. And then I heard Trashed, and I was like, I gotta buy this album. I mean, you know, obviously, like Zero the Hero and Trashed are, are awesome. I got it, and I, it's still really good. Like Digital Bitch is a really cool song. Disturbing the Priest. Um, born again itself I, I like the album uh i don't think it works as well as some of the others i guess but i certainly like it for me i like it more than the tony martin stuff um and i i don't like it as much as as dio but i still think it's a really solid era of the band in my opinion it's it's a it's a definitely a different take you know 
this is what happens. This is the end results of a drunken stupor that, <laughs> yeah. that that Tony and Tony and Ian get into. You know, and Tony's like, "Hey, you want to join the band?" And Ian's like, "Well, yeah, sure, why not? Ah, let's do it." You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, the next day, you know, the Ian's manager's like, "Can you kind of let me know?" When you plan on joining another band, that way I can at least have a little bit of advance notice before I get paperwork and I'm supposed to sign. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? <laughs> I mean, so there's there's some conflicting stories there, but I, I think the the more prevailing one now is that they were going to essentially form a new super group, but but our, uh, what's his name? Um, Sharon's dad, Don Arden. Um, was basically like, no, you're Black Sabbath. This is the same guy who said, no, we don't want Ronnie James Dio in the band. He's he's he doesn't have any fucking sense. I don't know how the fuck he stayed a manager, you know, for <laughs> for as long as he did, you know, making the fucking worst decisions you could possibly make, and then everybody going, you know what, Don, we're not going to do that. We're not listening to you. You know, it's a good thing because you know he just sat back and collected his fucking royalty checks and his payments, man. It's like shit, really. It's like, come on. Well, what, one thing I can tell you is that album cover probably really helped the album. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. This weird, this album was was odd, but I liked it. Like when I first saw Trash, I thought this is really cool because, I mean, I, I had heard of Ian Gillen because at this time, Deep Purple had already been broken up for a few years as a group. Ian had already been out of the band for, what, uh, eight years or so at this point you know maybe nine and so it was a matter of they they, they ian was doing his solo thing so i knew he was a singer for for deep purple at one point i, I had heard his voice he's got an amazing voice and <clears throat> to know that he was going to be in black sabbath and you know black sabbath got back together with bill ward i mean all that stuff was kind of like not something that was really talked about. Like, oh, it's not, you know, the original members of Black Sabbath with new singer Ian Gillen. It wasn't like that. It was just kind of, this is Black Sabbath. You know, they have another singer. The third one, technically maybe four, if you want to consider that one little guy that was there for, you know, half a day <laughs> before, between Ozzy and Ozzy. Dave Walker, <laughs> yeah. That guy. yeah. Um, so, you know, knowing knowing all that, I mean, you could tell. I mean, you got great musicians and you got a great singer. Did it work? On record, it worked. And when you when you listen to the songs, I mean, like, Digital Bitch might as well be a Deep Purple song, just with really, really heavy, distorted guitars, like way past anything Richie Blackmore typically did. You know, but for the most part, that, that whole melody of him in, in the vocal melody that he's doing easily could have been something off of Machine Head. You know, because that's just the way it sounded. It's like something like Highway Star almost. And, but Trash was good. Digital Bitch was good. Zero to Heroes is heavy and menacing and plotting. You know, Disturbing the Priest was, there's a little bit of trying to be progressive that just, for me, when they got away from that progressive part of the song, it, it, it worked better. But that whole off time kind of thing was just not working for me. <laughs> but otherwise the the album sounded like shit. <laughs> I don't know how you felt about it, but like it was just so muffled sounding and it still sounds like that today. 
it's not perfect, but I still like it. It has a mood to it, and and I thought this was interesting. So, um, so a couple people thought it was either their favorite or one of the best albums, and that was Chris Barnes from um, originally from Cannibal Corpse, and then Six Feet Under, and Lars Ulrich thought it's one of Black Sabbath's best albums. Um, and this song, or the song Zero, the Hero has also been cited as inspiration for Paradise City from Guns N' Roses, which I think is pretty crazy. I, you know, the out of all those things that you just mentioned, the most obvious one to me is the Lars Ulrich connection because he's a huge Purple fan. Yeah. I, I get that. You know, I can I can see that. Everything else, I mean, maybe yeah, Chris Barnes, and he's just a weird dude. Um, you know, but <laughs> but um, the whole thing with with Paradise City, I don't I don't see the connection there whatsoever. But hey, you know, if that's what they felt inspired them, by all means. I don't think it means inspired like they did a one to one no, copy. Ins- I think it was more like just like yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, I it's one of those things like the tour didn't go very well. Um, you know, they basically Bill Ward didn't tour. He had to go back to rehab, and Bev Bevan came in and played with him. Um, so it was kind of doomed to fail from the beginning, just to be honest. Uh, but I still think it's a pretty great album, and I and I I still put it up there above some of the stuff that came later. The the back cover of the album's very very Black Sabbath. And that is such a typical Black Sabbath kind of look on the back cover. Yeah, front cover. I don't know what the hell was going on with that. That front cover it's but, a red demon uh, baby <laughs> <laughs> you, you know it's pretty normal <laughs> yeah you see that all the time in advertising and everything <laughs> all right uh enough fun of black sabbath for now um we're gonna move on to one of the biggest albums to come out that year um, in terms of total overall record sales, and that's going to be Quiet Riot's Metal Health. Uh, I thought you were going to say Virgin Steel. Damn it. Man, I'm sorry. I, I, that's not going to happen later either. <laughs> so, all right, so Quiet Riot <clears throat> had been around the scene for a while. Um, they they released two albums in Japan. Randy Rhodes was their original guitar player. They kind of broke up, and then they kind of got back together, but... Randy was not part of the band. Anyhow, basically, they didn't get back together. Kevin resurrected the band. Um, That's a with, new formation of the band, honestly. Yeah, with with um, with Randy's blessing, he reformed Quiet Riot. Um, and shortly thereafter, they got signed to Pasha Records. And so um, Metal Health was released on March 11th, 1983, released on Pasha, like I just said. It was recorded at the Pasha Music House in Hollywood, California, and it was produced by Spencer Proffer. Um, so this album was probably the biggest quote unquote heavy metal album of 1983. And I say it that way because <clears throat> there were some big albums in there, but this one did, did a lot. Um, it re- they had two big hits off of it, which was come on, feel the noise and metal health. Um, it is the second heavy metal album to reach number one on the billboard 200, uh, the billboard 200 album charts. And it's the first being well, the first being ACDC's for those about the rock, which came out two years or earlier. Um, Come on, feel the noise reaches number five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, 
And that song was certified gold for the sale of more than 1 million units in 1984. Now, the significance of that is that it wasn't until 1989 that they changed the threshold for singles and reduced it to 500,000 units. So essentially, that single for uh, Come On, Feel The Noise is a platinum single uh, by today's standards. And a weird little tidbit on this, Rudy Sarzo actually did not play on Metal Health or the song Metal Health or the song Don't Want to Let You Go as those two were recorded before um, Rudy joined the band. Chuck Wright, the, the other bass player, uh, he was in the band and ended up leaving. And so Rudy came in, ended up playing on the rest of the album, but not those two songs. Well, that's an interesting statistic too. Is like So Chuck Wright had four 10 years in Quiet Right. <laughs> Rudy Sarzo has four 10 years in Quiet Right, both bass players. So the, uh, and like they just couldn't keep anybody consistently. Well, it's funny because Chuck Wright is the one who just left to allow Rudy Sarzo to come back mm-hmm. and take over the band. Yep. And, that's a, and that's a weird thing. And, that, and I, I'm glad, in that respect, I'm glad that Rudy's there putting the band through now because without Frankie... As much as Chuck Wright has has a tremendous amount of legacy with the band, in reality, no one really knows who he is as far as Quiet Riot is concerned. They know the name. They they know he's played, but he, he wasn't the guy on the videos. He wasn't the dude licking the freaking bass strings, okay, playing upside down. That was Rudy Sarzo, you know, and... Rudy is the one who's become synonymous as the bass player for that band, regardless of how much time Chuck has put in or Rudy's put in. So it's it's I'm glad that he's there now in charge of the band, if, if for anything. Because realistically, I mean they're they're playing small little tiny clubs. And yeah. you know, I don't know how I don't know how much longer that band can actually can continue to be a what they would think is a relevant band. I think they ought to get uh, Paul Shortino back. <laughs> he, he might need a gig. <laughs> <laughs> and so one last thing about this album. Uh, it's funny because this album, uh, Metal Health, was the first appearance of that metal mask that ended up appearing on almost every single album from the band from that point forward. I think maybe one or two tops it did not appear on. But it had some sort of resemblance to that cover or to that metal mask on every single album. After that, that's yeah, that's true. I mean, that's this is a new version of the band, essentially, right? So it, yeah. it would make sense that that would be the start of their their mascot. I think a lot of people other than outside of Japan really didn't know who Quiet Right was prior to around this area, and I mean around this time era. That's what I meant to say, rather than area. Um, but yeah, this was like, this was a huge album. It it crossed over into mainstream and that was huge for metal. Like them putting out this album made, made, uh, record companies go, we need to sign as many metal acts as possible. And it, it kind of created the boom of the metal scene at that time. And it's funny because that's exactly what Kevin Dubrow told everybody who came in contact with him. If it wasn't for us, nobody would have been signed. <laughs> but the funny thing is, the funny, the funny thing about that is, Motley Crue and Dawkins were signed before that. 
Exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of like, uh, what are you talking about, dude? No. But that was the whole thing. He ran himself into so much vocal, verbal trouble. Yeah. No, th- there would still be bands that were signed, but it increased the the amount for sure. Be- oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, he, he quite right, had much more initial success than uh, than Don Dokken, uh, much more initial success than Motley Crue. But, you know, we're going to talk about them a little bit later, but they had an album that came out that you know, this year too, 1983. So, and it was, it was pretty big for them. Um, but not as but big not as, as this Not one. as big as Kevin made it seem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he had so, some clashes with people over the years. That's, that's Oh, he clashes with, I remember the whole thing with David Lee Roth and David Lee Roth talking about how, you know, when he drank, when he drank Jack Daniels, it wasn't tea sitting inside the bottle. You know, it's like, you know, I heard that in Dave's voice when you said it, when I drink tea. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right. So what's the next album you got? Uh, So let's talk about a a little band from Texas. Now, I'm not talking about ZZ Top. A little band from Texas. Oh, I thought we were talking about ZZ Top. I do love the album they released this year. That would be Eliminator. Um, But... You know, I didn't really feel like ZZ Top was was you know a band that we would typically talk about. So I'm talking about Pantera. Um, Pantera. Yeah, back in '83. So I'm sure everybody knows this little bit tidbit at this point. But there was a time when you would say Pantera in '83. Well, that doesn't make sense. Um, but yes, they they had their glam era, which started when they were all very young. Um, basically, this this album was, you know, Vinny and Daryl putting together a project. They met, uh, they they met um, Terry Glaze in college, from what I understand, or at least in the scene around there um and they they basically terry glaze had had a band and he wanted Vinny to be part of it because he was such a good drummer and Vinny said we're a package deal so they had two guitarists which was terry at the time and and Vinny. i'm sorry and not Vinny and daryl um so when their singer that they were rehearsing with left then Terry Glaze moved over to vocals, and then they had Rex Rocker at the time on bass. Um, this is a very, very, you know, <laughs> what's the best word? Independent album. Uh, oh, independent is <laughs> it's beyond independent. This is like this is like self-released. Yes, I mean that's real independent. Yes, uh, Jerry Abbott, their father, uh, was the producer along with the band. Um, he ha- he was such a, a encouraging force on them as musicians. Like um, I can't remember which brother it was came home with a tuba from school and he said, "Take that back and learn a real instrument." <laughs> <laughs> So I believe it was Vinny because Vinny picked up the the drums and then not shortly after, um, Daryl uh, picked up the drums, and Vinny was progressing way faster. So he said, "Can you?" He said to his dad, "Can you buy him a guitar so we can play together?" And then you know they went from there. Um, if you listen to Metal Magic, um, man, it's it's very rudimentary. 
you can tell that they have a long way that they'll go. But for a first album from a very young band, you know, in their teens, um, this is really a lot better than some of the other stuff that was coming out at the time. Honestly, it was on par with Dawkins breaking the chains. <laughs> Maybe I don't think I don't think so. But no, it, no, I'm just oh, kidding. Okay. It, it, <laughs> I mean, like in some was... capacities, yeah. Like you can tell Daryl early on, his solos are really good. Like even if the songs don't have great hooks and they're not really catching on very well here, like Daryl has moments of greatness on this album, to be honest. And Vinny's drumming is, is really good. It's just, they still have further to go. Like they, they, this is the base level for them. Oh no, absolutely. This, this being their first album. Now, mind you at this time, you know, uh, Dimebag is, uh, 17 years old. Vinny's 19 years old. They're still teenagers. They're still, you know, getting their feet under them in terms of, you know, their musicianship. But they're already light years ahead of a lot of other musicians. Um, and because their dad encouraged them so much, that's pretty much the biggest reason why. I mean, just, they just had this tremendous amount of support to be able to do what they wanted to do. Um, you know, so they put this band together. This album is not bad. It, it is absolutely raw in its rawest form. It is great in it's got hooks in it. Are they are they the best hooks? Are we, are we talking poison style hooks? No, but it's poison style music. It's you know, uh, it's it's typical '80s glam, you know, from a band that is just starting out, and it sounds like a demo. It's you know, it's made like a demo. It's that's pretty much what this is, you know. But they put it out as their first album because, damn it, we've got ten songs and we're gonna put it out, you know. <laughs> And but they I mean, had they cool. had a little bit of a, a following because of the club scene, you know, they're playing yeah. and and they were becoming a big band, you know, just from the stuff that they had at the time, which is really impressive, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the artwork leaves something to be desired, but that's a whole nother story for another time. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the artwork's been lampooned to death. I mean, it's like a naked cat dude with a, a belt on no crotch. And the the weirdest looking sword you ever saw. It's not that he has no crotch. He's tu- he's tucked. He's tucked away. <laughs> well, <laughs> he has an extra third set of abs in the middle of his abs too. And so there's there's some definite anatomy problems. But let's be honest. <laughs> let's be honest. Like it was, you know, a band that was putting this together as teenagers just thought it looked cool didn't have money i'm sure to to pay some artists to throw something together for them and it did the trick for what it was at the time i mean pantera gained a little bit of a scene for you know where they were and you know it it got them to the next stage in their career when they wanted to be heavier so um yeah, I mean, as funny as the album cover is, I, I would probably love to own it. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely! I would I would totally love to own it. I mean, look, this is this is you know you got to take it into perspective as well. This is 1983. Metal is just I mean, glam metal. You know, out of L.A., out of New York, it's it's just really beginning to bubble over, and they you know they picked up on it. And they went with it. Mm-hmm. I, there's nothing wrong at all with this. I mean, this is, like I said, I listened to it the other day. 
pretty good stuff, you know, full of sexual innuendo. What do you want from a bunch of teenagers, really? Okay, this is exactly what a bunch of teenagers are going to put out. So yeah, pretty much. I, I dig it. I, I I thought it was cool shit. I mean, it's for for, it's, for, it's not. for what they would become. It's it's a um, it's an interesting piece in time. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what do you got next? All right. What I'm going to come up with next is. Um, what at the time would probably still have been my favorite band. In 1983, that would be Kiss. And they released Lick It Up on September 22nd, 1983 on Mercury Records. They was recorded at Right Track Recording Studios, The Record Plant, Atlantic Studios, and The Hit Factory, all in New York City. And it was produced by Michael James Jackson, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Michael James Jackson not being the same person who put Thriller out. But this guy who produced Creatures of the Night. <laughs> so anyhow, um, this album was released. Well, actually, prior to the album release, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Eric Carr, and Vinnie Vincent appeared on MTV. And they appeared unmasked, no makeup, for the first time in public to promote the, the upcoming album. And... Um, how shocking was that? You know, and I'm glad you asked that because <laughs> my next line in my notes says, I was in shock. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so, uh, I mean, you, you asked a perfect question because it, in in all honesty, I'm a 14-year-old kid whose favorite band is these four guys, is Kiss. And I've been through... The, the lineup changes to, from Peter Chris to Eric Carr. I went from Ace Freely to Vinnie Vincent. Um, did not know anything about the issues that they had because nobody knew about the issues that they had leading up to Unmasked, leading up to The Elder, leading up to Creatures. Nobody knew anything about that. All they just knew is Kiss was Kiss. Um, and, they, uh, you know, now you read stories way back from that day and you hear or you understand that there was rumors, but you know, I was a 14 year old kid. You didn't read that kind of shit. You just read a magazine. It was absolutely shocking, but at the same time, I'm like, Oh yeah, it, that kind of does look like him ugly as fuck, but yeah. Okay. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, and they did not do themselves any favors because they didn't really, um, give themselves a look other than like, they literally just, that came off the train and that's what they look like. Like Vinnie Vincent looked like ass at that point. He did not look good. Eric Carr kind of looked like himself. He had that big giant head of hair and a really tiny face, you know? And when you see Paul, you know, Paul's got those, you know, sleepy bedroom eyes, Gene Simmons. Eric, Eric was like 80% hair back then. <laughs> he was, it was just all fucking hair. <laughs> and he's all of like five foot tall. So, you know, he's got a, a three foot tiny hair. guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he was all hair. Um, but you know, and Gene Simmons, you like, you look at Gene and Paul and you say, yeah, okay, I can see it. I can see it now, you know, but Gene, you know, his hair was not the same, uh, not like what it is now, <laughs> but a lot better back then. Uh, it was shocking. It was shocking, but at the same time, uh, yeah, okay, I get it, you know. But yeah, as far as the album was concerned, that put Kiss back on the map. 
I mean, the whole thing of unmasking obviously was was genius strategy. Now the question was, it was genius? <laughs> that's a that's a that's a good point. <laughs> um, now the question is whether or not they had the musicianship to back it up. Now, as a fan, you knew they did, right? The question was, as a non-fan, did you think they did? And they proved that they did. Okay, um, album reached number twenty-four on the on the Billboard Top two hundred. Um, they released two big singles off of the album, "Lick It Up" and "All Hell's Breaking Loose." "Lick It Up" is is virtually a standard today on their in their set list. Um, "All Hell's Breaking Loose" is Paul's attempt at trying to be a rapper, and it's funny because it doesn't work, but at the same time, it's nineteen eighty-three, so it kind of works because you can see that you know Paul's the white Jewish guy trying to rap. <laughs> it's just, so well, it, it worked for the the Beastie Boys. Oh, a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, during the tour, Vinnie Vincent was fired. Um, actually, not during, but at the end of the tour, he was fired for personality conflicts. I mean, he just thought his shit didn't stink, and he wanted more money. He actually wanted the equal cut. He wanted to be part of the band. He wanted 25 fucking percent. Actually, I think he wanted more because I think he wanted more than Eric. Like Eric was like a hired gun type of thing. And he, he had his salary, but it was pretty large. It was a pretty big cut, I'm sure. But he, yeah. you know, Vinny wanted like cut of sales and merch and all that shit. And Kiss was like, what? Are you nuts? He was trying to invade. Yes, he was an invader. <laughs> it, you, you might even call it a Vinny Vincent invasion. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, <laughs> All Hell's Breaking Loose is one of three songs in the KISS catalog, which uh, the songwriting credits is given to all four members of the band, four members of the band at the current time. So at that time, it was Eric Carr, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, and Vinnie Vincent. Um, the other time is Kissing Time from the first album. And for the life of me, I forgot what the third one is. I think it's off a song off of Monster. Uh, so it was um, Tommy Thayer, Eric Singer, Paul, and Gene were credited on there. So that it was, it was a good album. And when I listened to it the other day, there's some really good tunes on there, um, and some really good playing on there. I mean, Eric Carr is just playing his ass off. I mean, he's a, just a sensational drummer, and. This album, I thought was pretty good. I mean, did have you listened to it recently? I mean, not since we did one of our last Kiss episodes, but um, I do like it. I, I I would say a couple songs come up on my playlist every once in a while. So I haven't listened to it in its entirety recently, but um, it's to me, it's a classic as far as Kiss goes. You know, it, you, like you said, it revitalized the band. And Vinny's input in this time period i think is so important um you know maybe he was asking too much and maybe there was the personality clashes but kiss owes a lot to staying alive at this point to to vinny just to be honest no, um, i agree with you completely but, i know you, you know the, but, there's only yeah. so much that you can ask for as a person who's been invited to be in the band a hundred percent I'm not saying that he was right. I'm just saying, like, you have to look at it objectively as well and say, you know, he he really did contribute a lot at that time. No, for sure. Um, so 
I, to me, I think this is this is a landmark album for the band just because they had reached a point where the gimmick was no longer working of, of wearing the makeup and the mystique was already kind of broken, you know, just losing two members of the band, um, having to replace them. And, you know, I think you can do that to some level, but at some point people start to lose interest. You know, some of the last few albums had not been what they expected either. Um, uh, Dynasty really, I think, turned off a lot of people from their sound. So this was a chance to be revitalized, and, and it worked for, to, to a great degree. It, it definitely worked. <coughs> the unfortunate part was that the album prior, Creatures of the Night, was 100 times better than this album. And this is still a good album. I mean, this is a platinum album, right? Creatures of the Night should have been double, triple platinum. I mean, it's that good of an album. It's unfortunate because people were over the gimmick. And yeah. that that's the biggest thing. Because even though the, the video for I Love It Loud that came out during that time was on MTV, it didn't get enough because MTV was over the gimmick. It really should have been bigger. And it's unfortunate. But the fortunate part was Vinnie Vincent still had some good songs in them gave you know helped paul and gene out tremendously like you said and this album is stellar the musicianship is on it is is good and you know it put them back on the map and it gave them a career in the 80s that is for sure yes 100 percent. all right so what is your next album all right um let's talk about a band that we really haven't focused on whatsoever let's talk about crocus uh, Crocus released their seventh album in this year. Um, this seventh, uh, Let me rephrase that because it sounded like they did seven albums in one year. Um, <laughs> so, so they released their seventh album in 1983 on Arista Records, uh, recorded at BJ Studios in Orlando, Florida. And this was produced by Tom Alom. So you probably know him from other things that we've talked about, including Black Sabbath. Uh, he he worked with Judas Priest to a great degree, uh, pretty much ever since 1979, uh, all the way up through Firepower. Um, he did worked with Y&T. He worked with Kicks, Def Leppard, on on through the night. So he has a pretty prolific catalog when it comes to. Uh, some of the bands that we talk about on a regular basis. Um, so, seventh album, you know, basically pretty long into their career at this point. Um, and this would be what would be considered their biggest album to date. Uh, it reached gold status in the U.S., I think pretty much on the back of Screaming in the Night, which I think even if you haven't heard much of Crocus at all, um, that's one of those those tracks that I think most people have heard. Um, you know, I would agree. This is probably their best album. Um, I've heard a lot of their stuff over the years. This is a band that unfortunately has some, you know, back and forth uh, membership, you know, you have members that have multiple tenures in the band, uh, like Chris Von Rohr. Um, you have um, Fernando Von Arb has multiple. Uh, Mark Storacci has left and come back. So, you know, it's sometimes when your band has so much change in membership, it's hard to stay consistent. 
Um, God, man, there's like 30 plus people on their their roster <laughs> over the years. They're um, not, they're and, not LA Guns, are they? <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, like LA Guns is listed as a member. <laughs> no, no um, but but I think Crocus has some really good stuff, and um, you know I would definitely like take a look or listen through their a bit of their catalog. Um, but for me, this is honestly one of their, if not their best album. Um, I think it it kind of hits that mainstream appeal to some degree where you've got songs like uh you know headhunter the the title track uh screaming in the night eat the rich uh stayed awake in the night all night sorry stayed awake all night um and that's a cover of a a bachman turner overdrive song and they do it to great effect so like i i'd like a lot of the stuff that's here and it's probably more cohesive than a lot of the stuff that came out before um but you know this was also their first kind of like major mainstream album in the US so what do you think of of crocus headhunter so i'm going to be honest i've heard long stick goes boom i've heard screaming and i think that's a fabulous song i love that song um i've heard them do uh american woman and i've heard their greatest hits Mm-hmm. But I had never heard this album as a whole until the other day. And I actually paid attention to it for the most part. And the one thing that I, I, I kept that kept prevailing to me when I'm listening to it is like his vocals have this familiarity to someone I know. And I could not pinpoint which singer he sounds like. Now, obviously, the biggest thing that he gets is that he sounds like Bon Scott. But he has this this thing about like sounding like Bon Scott mixed with um, uh, the dude from Jackal. I can't remember his name now off the top of my head. Um, and and that all that like Udo. He has this, this remnants of Udo and and you know uh, Mark Tornillo. It's it's all sounds like that, but maybe a little bit smoother, so closer to a Bon Scott. And I just kept listening to it. I'm like, man, this guy sounds so familiar. And I've heard them before, but there mm-hmm. was just, I kept trying to figure out who is it that he sounds closer to. Could not for the life of me figure I it mean, out. I mean, that could be because that was a kind of prevailing sound in, in European metal. Well, it was, it was more about they, they sound so much like if you listen to Long Stick Goes Boom, I mean, that 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 is an ACDC song oh, yeah. waiting to be given to ACDC. But um, <clears throat> his I, vo- I think he's been compared a lot to Bon Scott and probably like Robert Plant. See, I don't get the Robert Plant thing, but I, I, I can I, I can see that, though. But I don't I, like Rod, to me, Robert Plant's just so much smoother. You know, he's got such a cool voice. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, I did enjoy the album a lot. I mean, they had some really cool songs on there. I thought it was a very good album. Um, I mean, I, like I said, I love Screaming Tonight. It's it's just a really, really good album to me. Um, I wish that I probably had listened to it sooner because, in all honesty, this is a really good album. You know, Eat the Rich is a cool song. You know, Headhunter. I mean, it's got double bass, sort of like uh, Overkill from from Motorhead. You know that style. So you know, Side Two probably not as strong, 
but um, still, you know, side. I think side one was a, was a was a stronger side when you when you're looking at the the whole thing as an album. But it's still overall very good album. And I was like, man, I wish I would have caught this sooner. You know, like thirty years ago, forty years ago. <laughs> but it's I just- I had this album for a while. Um, I think it was kind of on the back of I heard um, their version of Ballroom Blitz. Oh, that's the from- other song, Ballroom Blitz. Well, that, yeah, that was that was on their next album that would come out in '84. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I had heard that and I thought it was really cool. So I, I, you know, I had a list of bands that, you know, I had to find something from, and I usually looked for like their greatest hits just so I had something because you know CD stores back then with metal was sometimes difficult to find. you know full catalogs and so i went looking for something from crocus and the only thing that i found at that point was the album that came after which i I really wish i could remember the name um the the album that came after yeah headhunter followed that followed headhunter the blitz oh duh Uh, (laughs) (laughs) ballroom blitz the blitz yeah um so that was the only one that I could find. And I, and the album cover had this, this woman, you know, and draped in cloth. that was basically naked behind it. And of course, you know, as a, as a teenage boy, I was like, yep, got to buy that one. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, the next album is pretty cool because it had midnight maniac, which is a really good song too. Yeah. Um, and it produced by uh, Bruce Fairburn and engineered by our friend, Bob Rock. So, there you have that. Our 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 frenemy. Our frenemy. Well, he's my friend. I don't have a problem with him. <laughs> you know. Yeah, all the other Metallica fans can have a problem with him. I don't. But that's just the way I am. <laughs> okay. All right. What you got? All right. Uh, up next for me is going to be this little band from Los Angeles, California. It goes by the name of Motley Crue. All right. They released their second album, Shout at the Devil, on September 26, 1983, on Elektra Records. It was recorded at Cherokee Recording Studios in Hollywood, California, produced by Tom Werman. All right, so Motley Crue comes on my radar with this album and looks to kill is all over MTV. And it's all over MTV, all over, and then all of a sudden they released Too Young to Fall in Love that video, I think they played it three to four times more than they played Looks to Kill. That song was on every single two minutes. It was incredible. The song was longer than that. They kept showing it every time in the middle of the song they would start over. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it was just insane how much they were playing Too Young to Fall in Love. Um, but here's so so interesting thing so they put three video three singles from this album they put out helter skelter i have the single now that's a, a physical copy single they actually i don't think they did a video for helter skelter but they put a single out it was a 12 inch picture disc single that had live wire and take me to the top remixed or was it the original leather record i think it may have been the original leather record mixes that were on there and I was so excited to jump all over that because I had heard about the first album being, you know, independent, really in, independently released and then picked up by uh, Elektra and remixed and all that shit. But 
um, to, to listen to that version on there that had the cowbell at the end with the clapping on live wire instead of the silence uh, in between the cowbells and the drum the drum breakdown at the end. It was so cool to listen to that and, and say, oh, wow, this is what they sounded like, you know, a few years ago. It was different. You know, I always I was always into the different kind of mixes and little nuances of studio work. Um, but I so I got I still have that and it comes with a poster and it's like worth a bunch of money now. Um, Molly Crew was just they they cemented themselves in the lexicon of of American heavy metal music at that time, and it was for a couple of different reasons. One, the infamy on the Ozzy tour that happened with them and Ozzy on the Bark at the Moon tour. Obviously, they're still talking about that today. They still tell stories about the snorting the ants and all the cocaine and all the stuff that happened in their, in that time period. You know, Ozzy could deny it all he wants, but I don't think Ozzy's denying it. Who was it? It was Jakey Lee who says, I don't remember that happening. Because that's Jake was probably up in the hotel playing his guitar while these guys were out there snorting ants on the pool. So one other thing that happened, and they could thank their the the PMRC for this, was you know PMRC wanted to start labeling albums. Well, they picked out Motley Crue, and they picked out Shout Out the Devil, but they didn't do a a warning sticker like the way they have now because they at that time they hadn't agreed upon that, so it wasn't a parental advisory, explicit lyrics kind of thing. It had a little tiny label that was the same color as all the writing on the back of the album. And it said, caution, this record may contain backwards messages. Are you kidding me? I mean, first of all, instantaneously, I'm going to buy this because I want to hear what's backwards. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing, if you had been up to date on any of the things that were going on with the backward masking... You definitely wanted to buy the record because, you know, you were feeling like, oh, you were going to get this special message. No, none of that shit exists in this album. It was it, it was made up by the PMRC thinking that they had something in nothing. It's a freaking good metal album. That's all it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the PMRC did not exactly have uh, kosher tactics in the way they were trying to adjust things. And honestly, it boosted the sales of the albums that they were trying to take down. You tell somebody, you can't have this, what do people want? That thing. Exactly. Dumbest crap ever, man. Like, (laughs) really, like... And the stuff that came, making fun of the PMRC after, was just gold, honestly. What what were your thoughts on the album? I mean, it's... as far as Motley Crue, it's probably their best album. Um, you know, just the list of songs that are on it. Looks the Kill, Shout at the Devil. Um, I'm not as big a fan as, as Helter Skelter, but it, that's a classic cover, uh, honestly. Um, Too Young to Fall in Love, absolute classic. Um, you know, it, it's debatable among the fandom. Like I think a lot of people think too fast for love is their best album, which I would probably agree, but it's a tough one. Um, but this one's definitely up there. Okay. I mean, that's, that's fair enough. I mean, it's my favorite Molly Crew album for, for sure. Absolutely. Um, too fast for love is good, but it's such a different album. And yes, it's 
it's gl- more glam than this one because this one's got a such a hard edge to it. I mean, you can hear it in Vince's vocals. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's an angriness to this album that is really really. Uh, I think it's some of Vince's best vocals. I oh agree. yeah, it's it's so relatable in in many ways, uh, and through all the stuff that they went through, and just just it it, it comes across so genuine. Um, in that regards. It didn't come across as genuine in 97 when they did Shout at the Devil 97. That sucked. I actually have no problem with that song. I, I, it, I, it's like they took one of the songs that they, because it's got that, you know, in the background, mm-hmm. you know, going over everything. It sounds like they took the, the, the sound off of something from the Motley Crue album and just put it over the top of Shout at the Devil. <laughs> you know, trying to sound edgier. Oh, yeah, they were they were trying to sound you know, uh, new metal. They were trying to sound uh, was not 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 so much new metal, but it was a kind of a combination of new metal ver- industrial. That's what it was. So yeah, were, you know, it it didn't work. But I didn't have a problem with the with the song. I mean, I I was looking at it as oh, this is an industrial version of the song. It doesn't bother me. But as far as being a Motley Crue, that wasn't Motley Crue. To me, that was just like a remix, even though yeah. it was a re-recording, technically. Yeah, it's, uh, we need to talk about Generation Swine in more depth at some point. No, we don't need to waste that time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what's your next album? All right. Um, let me, where, where'd my list go? Um, <laughs> all right. So my next album, I'm going to talk about uh, Melissa from Merciful Fate. Um, so released on October 30th of 1983 on Roadrunner Records, uh, recorded at Easy Sound Recording in Copenhagen, Denmark, and re- uh, produced by Henrik Lund. Um, so as it mentioned, I mean, this is a, a Danish album. Um, this is the first album from Merciful Fate, although they had their EP before that, uh, which uh, was Merciful Fate. That I believe is also known as uh, "Nuns Have No Fun." Is that are those the same thing? Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so Melissa um, was one that went under the radar for me for many years. Like I had heard um, Metallica's uh, compilation of of Merciful Fate, and I wasn't really into it. Honestly, um, that was one of the the tracks on that album that just never clicked with me for some reason. Um, but when we first started doing this podcast, um, you made me listen to uh, Merciful Fate, and I really got into them. And this has since become a favorite of mine. This this is my favorite Merciful Fate album. Um, but I mean, it's just it's an absolute classic. Um, so this band would, would spawn the career of King Diamond. King Diamond would go on to have his own solo career as well, but he's since come back and done, you know, multiple stints with, with, uh, Merciful Fate. And the two are just intrinsically linked together. They're always going to be, um, you know, for me, this is, this is like a rawer sound than some of the stuff that would, they would become more. Uh, refined as time goes on. One thing I think is kind of amazing is you have, you know, Hank Sherman and Michael Denner on guitar, and they just ke- kept coming up with riff ideas, and then and they just kept adding them to some of the songs. Like so, you have Satan's Fall, and Satan's Fall was, uh, I believe, was com- 
almost completely co- composed by Hank Sherman, and he keeps coming up with riff ideas, and it stays interesting through the whole course of 11 minutes and 23 seconds. Um, you know, some people say, well, it's not as refined, it's not as, as good as, as uh, you know, um, Don't Break the Oath, which is their second album, but I would I would disagree. There's something just magic on this album throughout the, the whole thing. Um, to me, Evil is... is just such a perfect opening curse of the pharaohs is such a great song into the coven um into the coven was one of the ones that made it to the filthy 15 correct yeah that's the one yeah so then there's surprisingly not satan's fall you know <laughs> yeah go figure right <laughs> um but then you, you like you have at the sound of the demon's bell Black Funeral. Black Funeral was a rework of an earlier song that they had. And then Melissa is such an odd song to like something very different than the rest of the album, but still fits in very well. Seven tracks to me, not a skippable one. I mean, the the whole album's great from beginning to end. What do you think? Uh, this is absolutely a classic album. Um, I love a lot of songs. I mean, it's got seven songs. I pretty much like all of them, um, but I'm probably more partial to five of them over, over, you know, Melissa say, and, and at the sound of the demon bell only because those are probably my least played, mm-hmm. you know, for all the stuff I listened to, but you know, the evil Christopher Farrell's into the coven, black funeral, even black masses. Um, I had that on a single, uh, a picture disc single back when I was a kid. Satan's Fall. I mean, it's just really good songs, great riffs. I mean, that's what it is. This is, this is just uh, uh, if you if you look at Metallica's Injustice for All, this is the 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 blueprint for something like that. It's just a, a cornucopia of riffs. <laughs> that is just riffs galore. Cornucopia. You like that, huh? Yeah, it's a big word like gymnasium. <laughs> So, um, I, it's an absolute classic. Now, funny thing is the song dangerous meeting is the first song that I heard off of don't break the oath. And then I went backwards and I listened to Melissa and I, I ended up picking it up at the record store for like a, a, a cutout price bargain bin price, like five bucks or something like that. Um, but it's still, it's, a, it's an original, uh, a roadrunner. Actually, it's not even roadrunner. My, my copy is a, is a, uh, mega force records, a licensed copy. And okay. it's, so it's pretty cool. Even though now it's been re-released on Metal Blade. Um, they have the relationship with Metal Blade and Metal Blade bought all the tapes. But I mean, just an outstanding album. I, I And one thing that's really curious to me, and it's, it's, I don't know if it's the timing thing, but this is 1983. This is their first album. This is their debut album. Now, mind you, they did release... You know, the Merciful Fate EP, otherwise known as Nuns Have No Fun. So there was that out there. But the thing about that is that came out at the end of 1982. So it's only a few months old at this point. At this point, they have influenced so many of the metal bands that made up the thrash scene that it's it's so weird. Like, like Lars Ulrich... Was was very familiar with them at this point. I mean, I only been around for a year, barely, and they they were so influential on that thrash scene. It is 
it's almost mind-boggling to think that the short period of time that they were there, they had such a huge, huge impact. But they I mean, did. They, they were one of those bands that not just had the sound, but they had an image that people like were scared by. I mean, they there were people in their country that were like, you know, we we can't listen to this because you're Satanists, <laughs> and he had to dispute that they, you know, the the music had nothing to do with that. It was about mythology, you know. It's kind of kind of hard to 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 dispute that when <laughs> the song's called but, but Satan's Fall. No, but it's about context because they they ended up writing songs about other kind of stuff that was um, occult but not necessarily specifically about Satanism. They, they kind of pushed away from that because specifically King noticed like maybe we should do something different because the point is not Satanism. The point is occultism. So, right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, but uh, one of my favorite albums out there, that's for sure. All right. So, um, moving on, what do you got next? All right. I have, one of two thrash metal uh, giants and their debut release. <clears throat> this is Slayer with Show No Mercy, released on December 3rd, 1983 on Metal Blade Records. Recorded at Track Record Studios in LA and produced by Slayer and Brian Slagle. Um, Brian Slagle, he's a very important figure in the career of Metallica, Slayer, Lizzie Borden and a lot of the bands that came the, the a lot of the harder bands, Armored Saint, a lot of the harder bands that came out of the LA area and Metallica, even though they came out of the, the Bay Area, um, they they started in LA, so that's how their friendship with Brian Slagle came about. Um so Slayer's album, Show No Mercy, was the second of the big four to release their debut album. Now, at this time, no one knew who the big four were. There wasn't such a thing called the big four. Um, but it is the second band of the of the big four bands to release their debut album. Um, and basically, it started out as, you know, they were playing. Brian Slagle saw them and said, hey, would you guys be interested in putting your a song on one of my compilation albums called Metal Massacre. I'm coming out with my, with my third one. Uh, would you like to be on it? They said yes. They gave him a song, Aggressive Perfector. And through that buzz, they you know they, they were playing around town. And Brian's like, you know, you guys are getting bigger. Would you like to, to do a record on Metal Blade? And so they signed with Metal Blade. And they self-financed their debut album. Um, Tom had some money saved from his job, and they borrowed the rest of the money from Kerry's dad, and they came up with Show No Mercy. Um, this album did not hit my radar until after Rain and Blood came out. Really? I may have I I may have heard about it. I may have seen it and I just wasn't into it cuz me and that whole uh satanic thing didn't really have a a kosher relationship until the a couple years later. <laughs> um but yeah, so that's how that uh ended up happening. I I didn't get into it until much later. Um and again, I didn't get into Metallica until 85 
So like that's a, you know Metallica at that point being the fastest thing here. So yeah, so that would perfectly line up with the fact that I I got Slayer in '86 and um you know with Rain and Blood and I went backwards from there. It's this is such a different album than stuff that would come later. I mean it's it's almost like corny and cheesy to to a degree you know where it's it, it just sounds very like teenage angsty edgy at times. Whereas Slayer would really mature into, you know, focusing on real world subjects. Sort of like that Pantera Metal Magic album. Yeah. I mean, even the album cover, I would put on par with the, you know, Metal Magic kind of stuff. A little better, honestly. The, at least the anatomy is a little better. Uh, <laughs> the, f- the feet leave a little bit to be desired on this, this uh, you know, um, what, what is his name? Um Baphomet kind of looking dude. Yeah, Baphomet. He's a goat warrior, I guess. Uh, Has a, you know, has a kind of appeal. I would say, like, if you're familiar with 1980s, 1970s uh, comic book, like uh, Elric and stuff like that, that same kind of look of those those warriors and and eternal champion kind of stories, stuff like that. Um, So... There, there is that appeal. Like I think a lot of the people that were into Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of stuff probably saw albums like this and went, you know, this this is for me, you know. So I I get that. The sound is very primitive. You know, it's not recorded very well. They wouldn't really get into you know the great quality recording until Rain and Blood. Um, but these this album is is a classic in its own right. You know, there's with those first couple albums from any of the thrash bands i think there's there is a bit of magic there because there is that hungriness that that need to put out the 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 music that they wanted to and that they believed in and i think show no mercy definitely shows that i mean i i really like the so- the song show no mercy um die by the sword is pretty cool Tormentor, and then you know, aggressive perfector, which is on the the re-release. You know that you mentioned before, is also kind of a, a classic. I think it ended up on what was it, the Haunting the Chapel EP. That 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 song is on like nine different albums. Oh, I'm in, sure. In in nine different <laughs> versions, like they they kept it was on Metal Massacre. They put they didn't put it on this one, but they put it on the re-release. They put it on the EP, but then oh no, it wasn't on the EP. They put it on. Um, the live undead, but then it really oh, wasn't. Oh, that's right, that's right. Okay, and then it really wasn't on. They did a live version, but then there was actually a studio version because my version of Live Undead is completely different than the one that's in Wikipedia, which yeah. is really weird. Um, and then the CD that I have is different than the the vinyl that I have. It's more in line with what's on on in Wikipedia. And then they released Aggressive Perfector as a, as a B side to one of the singles off of. Uh, um, South of Heaven, and it's like it's a completely different version. It's like they re-recorded like for a third time or something like that. It's just so weird, but its song keeps just popping up everywhere. <laughs> I think Slayer's just one of those bands that increased, you know, the, their quality as time went on. I mean, '85's Hell Awaits, I think, is is a a bit better than Show No Mercy, and then obviously Rain and Blood, South of Heaven, and Seasons of the Abyss are just classics in their own right the entire that entire like batch of time mm-hmm. so yeah uh, for me i mean it's uh, that's that's the era of slayer that i really like you know that stuff before and then it wasn't until you know 
uh, Christ illusion, I would say, that I got back into them. So, I mean, that's that's that took a long time for them to kind of get. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, yeah, I mean, Show No Mercy is a solid start. I think it's a it's a classic album. And, um, you know, it's it's not exactly where they would go, but it's a it's definite start. You can kind of see the direction that they would grow into. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it's it's definitely the beginning of something you could tell. You know, you, as as their career progressed, you could tell that this was just something that started them and kickstarted that the whole thing. You know, from that point forward, really cool. I, like, think about this. Like, they the label expected them to sell f- about five thousand albums, and that's that's really where they were at that time. Like, they expected pretty much all of their releases to sell about five thousand albums, and it sold three to four times that amount. You know, just in that that time period of, of right. 1983. So that's pretty impressive. Like, they, I think people were craving this kind of stuff, you know, and this was a great example of it. Oh, absolutely. And so really cool tidbit on this uh, is that um, Gene Hoglund was associated with the band. He was hanging out with them. I believe he was teching for, for Dave Lombardo. You know, not like you know, a drum tech does now. He was more like, you know, helping him out when they did shows. And he wanted to be on the album. He's like, oh, they're recording an album. I want to be on it. And so they decided that they were going to do big gang vocals for the evil part, uh, the part where they go, evil has no boundaries. Um, and so he he was like the first one to raise his hand. I want to do it. <laughs> so he's on the album uh, singing you know, background vocals during the, the gang vocal part on Evil Has No Boundaries. You That's know what's funny? Cool. So there's there's a lot of uncredited stuff like that in the, in the music industry. Like somebody will just walk in and record, you know, something on mm-hmm. on an album. So my audio teacher was, a, was um, the drummer for a band called Head East. And I'm I'm not a, super familiar with them myself, other than he he mentioned them, you know, when he was he was in there, and like one day when they were recording, the Eagles walked in, and and they asked them, you know, do you want to record, uh, the background vocals, or would you record background vocals with us? And they they were like, sure, and they they just did that on the album. I've heard stories like that on multiple occasions where it's like somebody just walks into the studio and they're like, Hey, wanna wanna be on the album? So that's kinda that's kinda cool. Can I can I get a point? <laughs> no. Sorry. Yeah. So anyhow we um we mentioned uh earlier uh, the PMRC on the Motley Crew album. Um, on this one the PMRC uh, stuck their nose into it again and they actually sent a letter to Slayer. Not a letter. A letter. Handwritten. I don't know if it was handwritten. It's probably typed. Um, they sent a letter to Slayer asking them to stop releasing records. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, wait a second. This is our first one. <laughs> but, so it's a, it's amazing what these people thought they could do. And Please stop it, and think of the children. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if anyone's interested in that episode about the PMRC, it was called the Filthy Fifteen. It was episode one twenty one. So so it's not that far back. So take take a take a listen to it. That was a pretty fun episode, honestly. No, that was a pretty fun episode. All right. So you got one final album you want to talk about. What is that album? I'm going to talk about the band that's pretty unknown. Um, they're called Iron Maiden. Who? Uh, 
yeah, I'd never heard of them before this, honestly. Um, <laughs> uh, so they they released Peace of Mind, which uh, was their first album with new drummer Nico McBrain. Um, prior to this, obviously, there's had been some lineup changes. Uh, the their first album with singer uh, Bruce Dickinson was the prior album, Number of the Beasts. And before that, uh, they had their, you know, falling out with their previous singer, uh, Paul Diano, <clears throat> and had replaced, like like I mentioned, this was the first album with Nico McBrain. Prior to that, they had Clive Burr on drums. Um, so a couple lineup changes at this point, but this is where they settle into their classic lineup. Um, Peace of Mind came out on May 16th, 1983 on Capitol Records and EMI Records Worldwide, uh, recorded at Compass Point Studios in Nassau in the Bahamas, and uh, this was pervert, uh, perverted, wow, this was produced by Martin Birch, uh, also known he, he as... He was a bad influence. <laughs> Black Knight. Um, so... This was a absolute classic album that came out, um, you know, starting off with Where Eagles Dare, Revelations, Flight of Icarus, Die With Your Boots On, The Trooper, Still Life, Quest for Fire, Sun and Steel, and Tame a Land. How do you release a 45-minute album with, with a song that does not miss? Well, that's, that's what Iron Maiden was doing at this time. Um, you know, there one thing that they became with Bruce was a little bit more mature in their songwriting. Um, you know, for better or worse. I know there's a lot of people that only think of the first two albums from Iron Maiden as, as classic albums and they don't want to listen to anything with Bruce. I completely disagree. I think he really elevated them to another level. Um, this was really at the point where they were starting to get big, like starting with number at the beast, uh, number, of the beast. I don't know what he said with the beast. That's weird. Um, so number of the beast and peace of mind just kind of blew them up into another level. Obviously they already had their club scene. They grew from there. Things got bigger and bigger. Iron Maiden became one of the biggest names in metal, uh, but they weren't progressing and they weren't, they weren't happy with the, the lineup. They thought, you know, this is this time to move on. Um, and clearly they, I think they made the right move. Um, you know, there's some interesting stuff. Like there's the hidden message at the beginning of, uh, still life. Um, you know, as a joke, you know, on these, you know, satanic accusations of, uh, like basically the same stuff that the PMRC was doing, just saying like, you know, this is stupid. So, um, <laughs> you know, what, what was the line that was the backwards message on there? If do you oh, remember, um, uh, something, something with the king with tree bonds, uh Don't meddle with things you don't understand. Yeah, so which is hilarious because they're they're just basically saying like you're an idiot <laughs> to the to the people that that are accusing them of being satanic. Well, it's funny because on, on Number of the Beast, they put a quote from Revelations about you know uh, you know woe to you or worth and see. It was it was put on the album. It was actually recorded, and then they put they pressed it on the back of the part of the graphics. And then on this one, they did the same thing, but instead of saying, I think it was the word rain on it, 
they put the word brain because of the whole peace of mind thing. And they had a, a, a Eddie's brain sitting in the middle of the table. So mm-hmm. they totally changed the, the complete meaning of that Bible verse. And it just, you know, had everybody up in arms that was Bible related. And it was like, you people just don't get it at all, you know, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the thought of a band like Iron Maiden being satanic is just amusing to me because it's more about the theatrical, like I always thought of their music as more of like watching a horror movie. You know, you're watching Dracula. I don't go like, oh my God, Dracula's going to come get me if I'm not a good, you know, good boy. Like, you know, first of all, he's he's after girls. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but regardless like i just i never had those kind of thoughts my you know i always saw this as just fantasy and and i i understand that that if you're so wrapped up in certain thought processes and you, you can't see beyond like the fantasy aspect of it i guess i get that but at the same time just as a kid i thought this stuff was so intriguing just so interesting you know like the character of eddie to me was was as iconic as any frankenstein or 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 wolfman or anything like that i just thought it was you know interesting like some kind of of creature almost (laughs) yeah no i mean I get it. There's so much blown out of proportion when it comes to Iron Maiden, and you just you just laugh at it. It's like, come on, people! If you really, really think that this is the way that 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 Iron Maiden are, you seriously have some problems. You know, why is it that someone who who's a kid can can see right past it, but you, who are as an adult, who has supposed to have a a more um, advanced mind, can't see past your own you know, your own freaking nose. I, I, I never understood that. You know, it, that's what makes it, it, it's astonishing to me the, that, that kind of, um, closed mindedness, you know? I mean, you have songs on there like to tame a land, which is about Dune, you know? So how do you go? Well, they, they're obviously satanic because they're writing about a fantasy novel about sandworms. Oh, you know, that, you know, the, the flight of Icarus is about Icarus. Ooh, it's a, it's a, you know, a Greek God, right? You know, yeah. so it's kind of like, come on people, you know, they got offended with revelations because, you know, there's something about revelations. Well, it, it's a completely different thing. It has nothing to do with the Bible, you know, uh, book. Uh, and then where he goes there about the movie, the trooper, you know, come on. Really? Yeah. Just, just to briefly clarify, Icarus was not a god. He was a, a mortal who flew too close to the sun. But yes, a Greek myth. Greek myth is what I meant to say. Yes. So, um, so this was the, the the first Iron Maiden album that uh, came out after I became a fan. So I was awaiting this album. I had mentioned that in a previous show before. Um, you know, the videos for Flight of Icarus and then uh, the video for the Trooper was just endless on MTV. Uh, and also, my uh, I had a local high school that played a lot of videos. I mentioned that before on one of our previous episodes. And they played Flight of Icarus, the Trooper. Um, they played Number of the Beast and Run to the Hills like it was going out of style every week. Because show was their show was only on like twice a week. Every time they had their show on, 
and played videos, those four videos are playing. Um, and quite honestly, in my opinion, this and Power Slave are probably their two best sounding Iron Maiden albums uh, to date. And I would actually put this one a little bit ahead in terms of sound quality. That's my opinion. I know not everyone agrees with that, but there's just something about the, the way the the drums sound on this album. The the everything just has that extra punch. Everything you know, the guitars are right in your face. The vocals are right there. You know, you can hear the bass pretty clearly in just about every song. And it's one of those things where it's just like it's it's near perfection. Number of the Beast is my favorite album overall because of the songs. But as as far as the overall package, to me, peace of mind is is near perfection. So, I was thinking about this the other day, and I I really thought about it specifically because of an album you're going to mention in just a bit, because I heard a version, a song, basically a band uh, covered a new or a, a musician, technically just one guy on YouTube covered a version of of a new song that came out from the band you're going to talk about and did it in the style of their first album and i was like i like this better than what i'm <laughs> than what i heard from the new version i legitimately did i was like this is pretty incredible and um and i thought about why like why did i like it better and it had to do with the distortion. It had to do with um, the recording style. But they made it sound like it came out in 1983. And I was like, I think I like bad recording to some degree. Not bad recording, but I like that sound of like analog recording better than I like the digital stuff. I... I there's something about it feeling that warmth, right? Like people always talk about how vinyl sounds better and that's not necessarily true. I think a lot of people just like the sound of, of, you know, the, the hiss and it sounds warm to them because it's something maybe nostalgic and maybe that's true. So I think a lot of times, obviously production is subjective. It can become too sterile. It can become like where it doesn't feel natural. Like you have, Eddie Van Halen removing the sounds of him sliding on his guitar, you know, things like that, where there is some charm to those aspects of, of, of music. When you listen to them, where things sound more natural, there's the hiss, there's the, the, the sound of the fingers on the strings. There's, um, you know, the, the quality or capability of the recording equipment. And it just sounds like, it's it, it sounds more authentic in some way rather than feeling sterile. It's like people have that argument when you go into a home where everything is straight lines. It feels like you're in a, a doctor's office rather than a home, you know, um, and it's it's like it's always subjective. It's it's your personal opinion on how it feels. So while, while you say like peace of mind, you say it has like the best production has the best sound. I think it's subjective, but as far as having the cleanest sound, I would agree. Well, I'm glad you brought that all up because right. that's 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 an argument that I've I've had, but with the person that I had it with, it was always I don't want to hear it. 
and we kind of we the, the conversation just kind of ended real quickly. Um, so the brand that you were referencing um, that I'm going to talk about now is Metallica, and Metallica released their debut album Kill 'Em All on July 25th, 1983 on Megaforce Records. We all kind of know that. It was recorded at Music America in Rochester, New York, and it was produced by Paul Curcio. So this is the first of the big four to release their debut albums. Um, so real quick, we're you know most everyone who's a Metallica fan or a fan of metal kind of knows the general story. They were signed to Megaforce Records on the buzz of their demo, No Life to Leather. Um, they traveled all the way across the country um, to record their debut album for Johnny Z because Brian Slagle of Metal Blade Records could not afford the $8,000 it was going to take to record the album. So he passed on it and he, he regressed that to this day. Um, but anyhow, um, Metallica went across the, the country. They went to New Jersey. They hooked up with Johnny Z, who was... Uh, a record store owner, and I think it was Rock and Roll Heaven was the record store he owned. He told the band that he would help them record the the record. Um, he did, and um, they put it out on Megaforce Records. That was the first record released by Megaforce. Uh, that and Raven came out at the same time. It was kind of one of those weird things, but... Um, it was originally supposed to be titled Metal Up Your Ass, as everyone knows, and they changed it just so that they can make sure that they get stocked by the distributor. Um, the reason why I, I say I'm glad you mentioned that production thing is I had this conversation with someone else, with a, a friend of mine, and we talked about how Metallica's Kill 'Em All sounds better than all the other big four albums. And I would almost say it sounds better than all the other four albums combined. <laughs> okay. Uh, Megadeth sounds like shit. Um, Anthrax is, is better than, than shit. And then Slayers is, is relatively clear, but you could tell it's just low production. I mean, when you, when you have to record the drums uh, without cymbals and then add the cymbals in later, I don't know which one costs more. The, the, to go through and kind of suppress the cymbal sound in between tracks or to actually have to physically go there and re-record all, you know, or add the recording time. I don't know. That's what ended up happening. I listened to this record and I listened to it on the Megaforce version on my stereo and it punches just like the remastered version. It has that same punch on the drums. It has that same really loud crunch on the guitars. I mean, the weakest part of it is the vocals. Okay. You can hear the bass clearly throughout most of the album, right? Which is much to the dismay of, of Lars Ulrich because he hates bass. <laughs> you know? But I mean, I, I'm glad you said what you said about enjoying, I guess you could say, that kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Because I thought that that sound, personally, I I can listen to that album and have no problem. It, to me, it's one of the best sounding debut albums from a from an independent, minor, tiny little label that had no money to put into an album, than than just about anything out there. I mean, there's there's debut albums. You know, you can't compare Guns N' Roses' major label debut to Kill 'Em All. You know. 
but I listen to all you know a lot of the raw stuff, uh, a lot not raw, but a lot of the older stuff that I have that that's all debuts and and um, independent record stuff. I mean, it's just it's hard to compare. They did a great job on it. Yeah, I mean, but again, yeah, it's it's subjective, but at the same time, like there is a cleanness to it that nobody else was achieving. So it is it is pretty impressive. I mean, I listen to major label debuts that don't sound that good. I mean, look at Testament's first album over the the Legacy. Yeah, it's not doesn't sound that good. You know, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm looking at my record collection. I'm like, what else sounds like shit? <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I, I mean, shit. And it sounds better than to me. It sounds better than than. Uh, you can't stop rock and roll from Twisted Sister because that sounds kind of muffly, a little yeah. bit, you know. So it, it's to actually put it this way: Under the Blade to me sounds better, but there's so much compression on the drums that it kind of kills the sound for the most part. Um, but they, they, I mean, it's just it's just done very well, and you know, a lot of people can argue with me all they want. That's just the way I feel about it. I don't know. It's like. It's a great sound. I mean, it definitely sounds. This there's a reason why Metallica is where they're at, and it all started on this record. Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, it started even before it technically, but yeah, um, the, this was the album that was m- massively available to the people, and it inspired God countless people to play just even a guitar, you know. People to pick up a drum kit, people to pick up a bass. I mean, how many bass players have been inspired by Cliff Burton? So, um, you know, obviously they have a huge impact on the metal world. Um, you know, they've they've kind of uh, changed their style. So obviously they have fans that have really more gravitated to certain eras of the band. But that that in and of itself, I think, is is impactful too. You know, where they have different eras that appeal to different groups of people so they can capture a wider net of fandom in some way. Um, but to me, Kill 'em All, top four album, obviously, for me. Like, uh, I'm only really a big fan of the first four albums. I like some of the stuff later. Um, but those those are my Metallica albums that I really enjoy. Um I can't remember where I placed it at the time, but it it's for me it's either three or four in their their top albums, and that's still after all these years. So, um, absolute classic. You know, obviously a lot of the stuff was planned before Cliff joined the band, and then the stuff was planned before um, before Kirk joined the band. He was the last member of that that lineup. And so you you have a little bit different sound that comes from uh, Ride the Lightning because that was the first album that all four of those guys were really working together. Um, but it's still a really, you know, recognizable album. I think anybody hears any of those songs and instantly knows that it's Metallica. And even without it, I mean, like even without be, having a heavy songwriting credit, Cliff had such an impact with just his anesthesia track on there. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, we all know the story of how Cliff joined the band, you know, because they saw him 
playing for trauma and you know they needed a new bass player they they didn't want to fire Rama Govney but Rama Govney knew his he wasn't long for the band because he couldn't get along with Mustaine uh go figure you know and so they got Cliff you know but Cliff said I'll join your band but you got to move to to San Francisco and that's how badly they wanted them they moved to San Francisco um so we all know the story. We you know we all know that Dave got Mustaine got fired the day pretty much a couple of days after they moved. They they finally got to you know New Jersey, and they they put him on the bus and sent him back. Um, you know all those things. You know one move after the next move after the next move, all brought them to where they are today. And you know they are hands down my favorite band. You know, and I'm I am a uh, a Metallica apologist, all you want to accuse me about, you know, but <laughs> bottom line is most of what is out there and most of what people complain about when it comes to, to what Metallica has done, not necessarily the songs that they've written and not necessarily the, the, the actions they have taken, you know, in terms of creating a, a St. Anger, it's just over the years, all the things that they've done, you know, I would say, most people would would recognize that to be something that was good. And put it like that. I'm not gonna recognize Saint Anger as good. No, no, I'm not talking <laughs> I'm about just, Saint I'm Anger. Just I'm just saying not not, not necessarily the the, the product, like the things that they've done, you know. Like as much as everyone says oh, they should have never put out some kind of monster, you know what? It it broke the doors open for a lot of different things. It just so happened to be that they did it publicly for things that were probably already happening behind the scenes that people didn't talk about. Sort of like, you know, things need to be out in the open sometimes. And for, there's always someone. They were dead on correct when it came to, to Napster, but nobody wanted to do put the fight up. They had the balls to do it. Did it work? Not necessarily. The gate, the gates were already open. That was the thing. It didn't matter because it's never stopped anything. Even taking down Napster didn't stop anything. They weren't wrong, but the gates were already open, and there was no close. It's like opening Pandora's box, right? Once it's open, it didn't close. So right, but the unfortunate it was already open, but but the the music industry was so far behind the times that their reactions were absolutely horrible. And there were ways that they could have made it where stuff like this, you know, that the, 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 the industry wouldn't have been in such peril because of it. But they were, they were so out of touch, so out of date, and they did not listen to some of the artists, specifically Metallica, that, you know, uh, that this is not the way it's supposed to go down. But unfortunately... You know, it is what it is. And, you know, he's still, he still is bearing the brunt of that today, but everyone always says he was dead on right. It's just that no one was willing to speak up at that time. Sort of like D. Snyder when he went up in front of the PMRC. No one else except for him, John Denver, and Frank Zappa had the balls to stand there and say something against these people because they all thought that their livelihoods were going to be, you know, taken away. It's, it just comes off a little differently to some people, right? Because Metallica was making money hand over fist, and everybody knew that. 
So, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that's just that's just perception, right? So people go, oh, you know, millionaires losing money, but it's it's not the same for everybody because it's it, it wasn't just about Metallica; it was about other bands, right? So like people that are not making millions of dollars from their releases were affected in the same way, and and even more so because. You know, not everybody has the licensing capabilities of Metallica. Not everybody can create their own, um, you know, alcohol. Not everybody can create their own, you know, what 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 doesn't Metallica license? They're on the same level as Kiss now. Yeah, right. Like, there's probably a Metallica thong somewhere out there. I'm assuming. So, <laughs> well, you know, to, on, on the, along those lines, right. The, the, the biggest thing that I always see, like, you know, I read an article, well, Metallica sued this makeup company because they had a, 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 a an eyeshadow named Metallica. And it was it was said by, I forgot who, who I was reading talked about it, mm-hmm. you know, that I think it was J, uh, J.J. French from, from Twisted Sister. The unfortunate part is if you don't sue what happens is you lose the ability to sue later. Yep. You have to set a precedent. And and when somebody's right. going to possibly damage your IP, it doesn't matter. You have to you have to take care of that. So it's not about right. like some, you know, they're they're just trying to take down some some makeup company. What if the makeup company puts out so you know, Metallica, whatever. And then, you know, people start wearing it and their faces break out and they're permanently scarred by it. Like that's their IP. That's their, that's their bread and butter. That's their livelihood. They cannot allow them to do those kind of things. So it's, it is always funny to me how people will go like, Oh, you know, the big guys just trying to take on the little guy. No, you know, they have, they have earned everything that they have, you know, like it or not. And, um, you know that's just a, a fact. You have to protect the IP of what you are, are you are what what you makes you your money, what makes your livelihood. Right, and what's the biggest thing about all that? Control. And that was really, you know, everyone talked about. Oh, Metallica had millions. They didn't have to sue Napster. Blah 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 blah. It wasn't about money. Never was about money. It was about control. How how they were in the recording studio with an unfinished product and that got on the radio without their permission. It's about control. That's all it was about and how they are able to disseminate their product. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you take that away from any artist, they're all going to fucking lose their shit. Okay. And that's what ended up happening to a lot of different artists because then once they, once they were unable to, have that control then that's when it started affecting livelihoods so that's what it was all about and people you know want to sit there and complain well you know they had all sorts of money now nah, it's not about the fucking money okay it was about control it's not easy to always explain that to everyone because again perception is reality right and that's that's no, the term we've brought up many times where people see it in a certain way and it doesn't matter if that's the case or not they're just going to see it how they want to see it because well let's just face it a lot of people are narcissistic these days and only see mm-hmm. how things affect them but you know that's story for another time 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, so while we're on the subject of these albums that came out in 1983, uh, before we head into our big four, we're just going to list a few records that came out this this year, 1983 as well. We're not going to go into any depth about them for the most part, but um, I'll just name off a few, then you can pick up a few for yourself, Chris. Okay. Um, uh, ACDC came out with Flick of the Switch except with balls to the wall. We kind of mentioned early on in the, in the episode, Alcatraz had, had, um, day had formed this year. Alcatraz was formed. Like we said, with Grand bonnet. It had Ingve Malmsteen on guitar. Another band, and I'll, I'll put this in conjunction with Alcatraz. Another band that also formed this year was a band called Steeler that was fronted by Ron Keel. Ingve Malmsteen came over from Sweden, was hooked up with Ron Keel. They made their first album for Steeler and immediately upon the album's release, basically, or even before the release of the album, Ingve had left to join Alcatraz. And then uh, immediately upon that, uh, I think I, I, he may have even gone on tour with them. Ingve ended up leaving and basically doing his own thing after that. Um, Anvil Forged in Fire. Uh, so actually, I, I meant to say, Alcatraz released their album No Parole from Rock and Roll <laughs> this year. Anvil, Forge and Fire, Armored Saints' first EP, the Armored Saint EP, was released on Metal Blade. Um, and uh, we talked about uh, Black Sabbath. One huge album that we didn't talk about that came out this year, Def Leppard's Pyromania. Um, that stayed in my boombox for quite a long time, especially songs like Photograph and Rock of Ages. What albums you got? Uh, did you mention All for One by Raven? I did not, because Raven's on the R section. I'm still in the B, in the I'm in the D's. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so there was All for One by Raven, which I think to this day to me is their best album. Um, you have See You in Hell by Grim Reaper. Um, one band we've never talked about, which I think is is kind of a, a very um, influential band in the scene, but maybe not in in the the fan base out there is Manila Road released Crystal Logic, which was, I believe, their third album. Um, that's one I think we should talk about it in some capacity at some point. Manila, Manila Road is one of those very overlooked American uh, metal bands. Um, you already said De uh, Def Leppard's Pyromania. Uh, what about, uh, did you mention Bark at the Moon by Ozzy? I did not get to the O section. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a pretty massive one. I mean, that's uh, you know first album after uh, Randy Rhodes passing. This album was a hundred percent written by Ozzy. Ooh, I did not know that he was so prolific it, at songwriting. Yeah, he was like he picked up a guitar and a bass, and he was like, I'm. I'm going to write all this. That is the most amazing this. thing about that. Because I swear to God, we talked about this when we compared uh, um, The Ultimate Sin to, to Bark of the Moon. We did the head-to-head. I, I remember distinctly to this day picking up the record, Bark at the Moon is seeing all songs written by O. Osborne. And I'm like, really? And I don't know anything. I'm 14 years old. I don't know anything about anything about Ozzy couldn't write a freaking note. Right, but I just found it so unusual that the first two albums had all sorts of contributions by the by the full band, right? Mm -hmm. But this album that had Jakey Lee, this monstrous guitar player, had, um, you know, it had Tommy Aldridge on drums, even though, um, what's his face, uh, Carmine Apice played you know, or was on the video, you know, Bob Daisley was on it. How how was it that none of these guys had any in input on the songwriting? I was just 
flabbergasted. Because Ozzy, all of a sudden, just gained this magic ability. That that is something that will stand out in my mind forever. <laughs> oh, what else came out? Um, so there was there was Zaxxon's power and glory, or power and the glory, I should say. Um, then there's Man of War into Glory Ride. You know, um, let's see what else. We got to talk about Man of War soon. <laughs> yeah, um, I make jokes about Virgin Steel all the time, but one of their better albums, uh, Guardians of the Flame, actually came out this that year. Um, that's a, that's a band that's really interesting to talk about, and you know, to some degree, flies under the radar. But um, you know, that that's one that we're gonna have to definitely do something with. Um, Rat released their Rat EP in 1983, correct? Yes, sir. And then Suicidal Tendencies with their self-titled album as well. And th- that was a landmark debut album for Suicidal. Uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, Eliminator by ZZ Top not necessarily a metal album but hugely influential and just a fantastic album Dokken released their debut record Breaking the Chains and almost got dropped by Elektra um, but then they convinced them to give them one more shot and they came up with Tooth and Nail and, and they were able to expand on their record deal so that was a pretty good uh, pretty good deal that they they worked out there that's crazy to me that they were almost dropped after breaking the chains. I don't think they generated the buzz like all the other LA bands did. You but know, they had that awesome music video where they were busting the chains in a dungeon. No, they were breaking the chains. I know, it's a, it's a synonym. <laughs> I know. It's just, <laughs> Uh, anyhow I see what um, you did there <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the any others that you can think of uh, Y&T Mean Streak uh, Triumph Never Surrender um, Sabotage another metal band that's grossly underappreciated by you and I on this show <laughs> um, Release Sirens uh, Lita Ford Out for Blood um, Europe's first album Europe and there's a bunch of others that came out. Check out the list on Wikipedia if you want. Um, and then finally, um, there were a couple live albums, but the most notable was Thin Lizzy Life Live. And then a couple of compilation albums. Metal Massacre 3 and 4 came out in this year in, in 1983. Metal Massacre 3 featured Slayer's Aggressive Perfector with uh, Metal Massacre 4 featured Lizzie Borden's Rod of Iron. So... There was a lot of good stuff in 1983. I tell you, it was a landmark year for metal. It was really, really important. Um, so check out a lot of these titles when you get a chance, if you have not already, because most of you should already have. But I know there's a lot of young cats out there that haven't gotten on the on the bandwagon yet, and you got to listen to some stuff, man. All right, well, that brings us to our big four um, albums of 1983. And... Um, and it's chosen by us, and so that's our, our individual favorites, what we think are the big four albums for this year. So um, I believe you went first last week, so I think I'll go first this week. That works for me. All right. All right, so my big four albums, and man, I had a hard time picking because there was just so many good albums for me. I'm a more mainstream guy, much more than you are, um, but... Uh, I had to throw in an honorable mention in there real quick. It was Motley Crue Shout at the Devil. Um, but 
Number four for me was Dio's Holy Diver. Um, it was just, it, there was something impactful about that. Just seeing that guy, the little tiny guy on, you know, coming out of the Renaissance forest, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was just one of those things that yeah, I thought it was really cool. I, I really think that album is very influential. I mean, Vivian Campbell, uh, you know, cemented his place in, in metal history and uh, it was just very, you know, it's a veteran act with a very young guitar player, and they did a really good job of putting everything together. Number three for me, we briefly mentioned it a few minutes ago, Def Leppard's Pyromania. I, I you know, it's like there was a rotation of albums, you know, Shout Out to Devil, uh, Bark at the Moon, Def Leppard. I mean, I, I, was, I didn't know anything about Metallica at this point in 1983, so I wasn't a fan yet. Um ACDC's Flick of the Switch, all these albums were on, on my stereo, but Def Leppard was one of those that I, we heard all day long, every day during the summer because so many people were into it and they just wanted to hear Photograph and then Rock of Ages came out and the video on MTV was just nuts. Um, number two for me is Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind. Um, we've already kind of gone over that one. It's just it's not my favorite, but it's way up there in terms of my Iron Maiden albums. Uh, so it's my number two 1983 album. And if you already didn't know what number one was going to be, I'll, I'll give you the surprise. Spoiler alert, Metallica's Kill Em All. <laughs> so what is your big four? I'm absolutely shocked that Metallica was your number one. You're as shocked as I was when I saw Gene Simmons' face. <laughs> Maybe more so, uh, you know, but <laughs> shocking. So we actually do have quite a bit of crossover. We have three albums that crossed over. Oh, wow. Um, it's hard to not pick some of these because they are that good. Uh, my number four is Holy Diver uh, by Dio. Um, absolutely fantastic album. Um, like you said, like Dio's just iconic. He really is, you know, and. Uh, he he's cemented his legacy every incarnation of what he did you know his stuff in rainbow his stuff in black sabbath and dio everything and then like it, even just his his contribution to jack black's movie uh the uh uh pick a destiny like i just it's just so iconic you know dio's one of those guys and this this album to me is one of the most solid that Dio released. Um, my number three is your number one, Kill 'Em All by Metallica. Um, I used to be, when I was much younger, just a massive fan of Metallica. So this had such an impact on me, got me to listen to a lot of other bands. Um, this was, like I said, one of my favorites, still my top four Metallica albums. Um, you know, I, I kind of dropped off of them later which we've discussed before um but this one will always remain a classic to me and one of my favorites of that band uh you know anything with with cliff on it to me was just phenomenal um my number two melissa by merciful fate it's one of those albums that you know i i listened to later in life but um it it really grew on me has become one of my favorite albums period um you know i've got it framed on my wall um Evil is just one of those tracks that I constantly go back to, absolutely love. And uh, my number one is uh, going to be Shocker to Everyone, in the same way that uh, yours was a shocker. Uh, Peace of Mind by Iron Maiden. 
Um, Iron Maiden, as many of you know, is one of, if not my favorite metal band, and uh, Peace of Mind is up there. It's not my favorite album by the band by any means. Um, it might be fourth or fifth uh, in their their collection, but your favorite um, is X Factor, isn't it? Absolutely, anything with X in the title <laughs> is just is tops to me. Um, oh, so you like both. X Factor and Virtual Eleven because there's an X in the Eleven. Yeah, if they could have just thrown X's in all the titles of everything going forward, and <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, um, the, the, neither of those are even in my top. Um, they're probably the bottom two, but uh, there are a couple good songs on both of those albums. But that's not what we're focusing on here uh peace of mind for every reason we we mentioned earlier um absolutely fantastic album it's one of those that just doesn't miss from beginning to end um you know i something about it just doesn't resonate with me as strong as um say um power slave or uh even seventh son of a seventh son like i somewhere in time either my first or second favorite depending on my mood um, so yeah, it's just, it, how, how does a fifth or fourth or fifth favorite album from a catalog make it to number one slot? It just means that that's, they've got that many good albums. Absolutely. All right. Well, I like your list cause you got three out of mine four. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I said, it was so, it, it was really difficult to, to really put them in a particular order that was going to suffice. I mean, obviously, I, I knew Metallica was going to be number one, and I knew Iron Maiden was going to be number two. The question was, how did I fill out the other two spots? You know, that's why I had to mention something about Molly Crew, because that was a pretty big album for me back then. So, I mean, bands that are on that list, you know, in a few years' time might make it higher to the top with other releases like. Man, we got to do 86 at one point, you know, with, with oh, yeah. the impact of 86. So many amazing albums. Um, but, but yeah, like these early albums didn't necessarily make it to number one. But the iconicness and, and just staying power of all these bands that we talked about, it's, it's you know, continues on for many, many years, even till to this day. So. Yep. I mean, all these albums have turned 40 this year, so go out and listen to them when you get a chance. Enjoy it, because these are classic albums. Most every single one of these are some sort of classic. All right, well, that's our big four albums for 1983, and I just want to remind everyone to tell your friends about us and click the subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And don't forget to leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. YouTube viewers, click subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when we post a new episode. So remember to tune in next week when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya!